when I gave my inaugural lecture, uh, and there's a, always a roasting afterwards, and um, Professor Mao said, I talked about whether there was one Isaiah or three Isaiahs. If you don't know about that, don't worry at the moment, we'll come to it um, in due course. And um, Professor Mao said in the roasting that he didn't mind if there were three Isaiahs, as long as there was only one Isaiah. <laughs> I've no idea what that meant, but it was really very clever. <laughs> right, page 68. Uh, the book called Isaiah, A Message from the Holy One of Israel. Um, now, what I'm trying to do today, and uh, if, you're, if you're looking at your computer, you need to have the print view because there's a diagram thing that I think you'll probably you're only be able to see if you've got the print view on, um, is to give you a, a kind of map of the book as a whole, uh, some signposts, signposts that will help you as we go through it. Um, it may be that they're totally useless, in which case, I'm sorry, uh, it may be that only in the end that you'll understand the diagram, well, there'll be bound to be an element of that because there's an interaction between getting parts and getting the whole. It may be the, you're the kind of person to whom diagrams are no use at all, which, again, I apologise, uh, but some people like them. Uh, but, but maybe this will help you to get a hang uh, of the book as a whole and see how the different parts as we go through it fit together. As it says at the top there, the book of Isaiah speaks to many different periods and takes up many different themes. But a feature that runs through it is the frequency with which the whole book describes God, Israel's God, Yahweh, as the Holy One of Israel. That title for God comes only 30 times in the Bible as a whole. 25 of them uh, are in Isaiah spread through the whole book. So you could say that Isaiah is the book of the Holy One of Israel. That was the title for God that naturally came to the prophet Isaiah's lips. Um, the other places where uh, the title comes are uh, three times in the Psalms uh, and twice in Jeremiah. Uh, and the link with the Psalms um, suggests that probably the title has its origin in the worship of the temple. In other words, this isn't a title that Isaiah made up, uh, but a title that, uh, that he'd heard, but that came home to him, became his, that he made his own. Probably has its origin in the worship of the temple, but Isaiah made it his own. And the reason, it seems likely, uh, goes back to the vision which gave him his commission. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty, Yahweh Armies, is what the seraphs proclaimed. Um, and that vision of the Holy One, which Isaiah has, then lies behind the book as a whole. And that's what this diagram uh, seeks to show. So the first 12 chapters of the book, at the top um, of uh, that diagram, the chapters that you've read for today, are challenged to Judah from the time of Ahaz. Um, and um, that's in the earlier part, therefore, of Isaiah's ministry. Uh, in verse 4, more or less at the very beginning of the book, um, God's lament is that this sinful people have forsaken Yahweh, have despised the Holy One of Israel. In chapter 5, verse 19, uh, Isaiah puts words onto people's lips. He does this a number of times. He makes them say things which they didn't literally say, but which are, uh, are the implications of what they said. That is... They say, 
Let him make haste. This is let God. Let God make haste. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel hasten to fulfillment that we may know it. They weren't really being kind of blasphemous like that, but that was the implication of the way they talked. Um, And the title comes again in verse 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down into the flame, in the flame, so their root will become rotten, their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the instruction of Yahweh armies and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 10, verse 17. In the course of judgment, the light of Israel will become a fire. The light, Yahweh is the light of Israel. It wasn't supposed to be destructive. It was supposed to be blessing. Light is supposed to be blessing. But the light of Israel will become a fire. And his holy one will become a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. And verse 20. On that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on the one who struck them, but will lean on Yahweh, the holy one of Israel, in truth. I'll go on and read the next bit because it talks some more about the remnant and then I'll talk about the remnant which one of you have asked me to do. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel were like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord Yahweh armies will make a full end as decreed in all the earth. Note there how that expression, as I've said it, the Lord Yahweh armies... There, it's the word God that's in all capital letters, but it still means it's the name Yahweh that lies behind that. Um, the word Lord is in a capital L, but then small O-R-D, so it's the, it really is the Hebrew word for Lord there. Um, so, more literally, the Hebrew says, the Lord Yahweh armies will make a full end as decreed in all the earth. Now, that expression, a remnant will return. Uh, came in the title, the name um, of the, that Isaiah gave to one of his children, Shear Yashuv. Um, one of two of you noticed how interesting it was that Isaiah's children got caught up into his ministry. Some people thought it was a good thing, some people thought it was a bad thing. I mean, some people thought it was nice, but it, it was tricky. Particularly these names. I mean, who wants to be called Machea Shalal Harsh Baz? <laughs> Though at least they can call you Baz for short. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, but it isn't, I imagine, that names like that, same is true about Imanu Ail, um, and Wonderful Counselor, Mighty Lord, and all those in chapter 9. They aren't, uh, one isn't to understand them, I think, as the names that the child had, as if Mrs. Isaiah shouts out the back, shouts outside the back door, Maher Shalal Harsh Baz, stop doing that, and by the time <laughs> you've got to the end of his name, he's already done it. Um, it, it's, it's more uh, a name, it's, it's rather like uh, Naomi saying, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, bitter. Don't call me Naomi, which means, uh, whatever it means, um, consoled or something. Uh, call me Mara, which means bitter. She doesn't mean she's literally changing her name. She's mean this is, she means this is a name that would suit me. Um, and these names are a significance that attaches to this person. So the reason why Isaiah takes his children... Uh, with him is because they are themselves signs. The fact that they've had this name uh, kind of blazoned on their chests, as it were, um, means that w- when you see them, you're reminded of the name that they have been given. Uh, and one of them is this name, Shi'ar Yashuv, a remnant will return. 
And the genius of that expression is how ambiguous it is. Most of the ambiguity comes out in that passage that I just read from chapter 10, but not quite all of it. Because does a remnant con- uh, remnants are the leftovers at the end of a piece, a roll of carpet or fabric, right? It's not a compliment to be a remnant. So when um, Isaiah says a remnant will return, it means there'll only be leftovers. Um, and it's not so different from when Amos says that uh, when Ephraim has been destroyed, all you'll have left is a few bones um, that, that will thereby provide the evidence that there once was a sheep there. It's like that. A, a leftovers will return. A remnant will return. But, is, and, and, but Isaiah could be referring to the Assyrians. That is, God is going to do this terrific act of deliverance and only a remnant of the Assyrians will return home. And or, he could mean, God is going to bring judgment upon you Judeans and only a remnant of you will return. Whichever of those he means, um, or at least with the, when, when the second comes true, uh, in light of the second coming true, the passage in chapter 10 then turns the notion of the leftovers, the remnant returning, into the idea of them returning to God. So that the notion of a remnant that starts off, well, it's good news if you're talking about the Assyrians, but bad news if you're talking about the Judeans, then can become good news because uh, it opens up the possibility that these leftovers can turn back to God. So, on that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more learn, lean on the one who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. There's the good sense of remnant, where it's becoming a faithful remnant. It's not, in other words, the idea of remnant is not that there is a faithful remnant within the people, um, and nor is it that the faithful remnant are the one who is, ones who escape. The ones who escape, it's kind of random who escapes, um, the challenge is, if you're amongst the ones who escape, are you now going to become the faithful remnant? A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God, for though your people Israel were like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. See the, the play between the meanings of remnant there. And in chapter, tw- chapter 1 to 12, f- finally in chapter 12, verse 6, uh, the very last words um, of the section... Um, chapter 12 is a song of praise for you to sing on the day when God's act of deliverance is achieved. So chapters 1 to 12 is a totally complete unit on its own. If it had been a, a prophetic book on its own, it would have been perfectly satisfactory. There's declaration of judgment, there's promises, the, idea, the picture of God bringing about restoration. And then there's a song to sing on that day. Very convenient. You don't have to kind of write one, it's already there. And it ends up, shout aloud and sing for joy, O royal royal Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That's all then from the early part of Isaiah's ministry in the time of Ahaz, uh, when there's a challenge about trusting in Yahweh, when the people, as chapter 7 indicates to you, are under pressure from the Syrians and the Ephraimites to the north uh, to join them in resisting the Assyrians. Um, And the question is whether the people are going to attempt to sort out their destiny um, by working politically like that, or whether they're going to lean on Yahweh, as chapter 10 says, trust in Yahweh, um, as Isaiah says back in chapter 7, with the superb, the pun that the NRSV brings out quite neatly, um, 
If you do not stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all. Isaiah uses two forms of the verb to stand. If you do not stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all. That's chapters 1 to 12. Now, going anti-clockwise around my diagram, chapters 13 to 23 that you're going to read for Monday um, is, is also a message of calamity and hope. Chapters 1 to 12 is a message of calamity, but also hope. 13 to 23 is a message of calamity and hope. But it's calamity and hope not for Judah itself, but for the nations all around. Uh, and what you get is declarations of what God is going to do with the various nations in Israel's world. These nations never hear these prophecies. They are given for uh, Judah's own sake, because they need to have a way of looking at the nations around in order to form a right attitude to the nations and to themselves and to political issues and so on. And in the midst of those chapters, there's one reference to the Holy One of Israel, chapter 17, verse 7. On that day, people will regard their maker and their eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. They will not have regard for the altars, the work of their hands. They will not look to what their own fingers have made, either the sacred (coughs) poles or the altars of incense. They will look to the Holy One of Israel. Carrying on round anti-clockwise, the horizon broadens again. It was just little Judah in chapters 1 to 12. And then in chapters 13 to 27, it's the nations all around. And then in chapters 24 to 27, it's the whole world. Again, it's a message, it's a vision of calamity, but also of renewal. But whereas in chapters 13 to 23, individual nations keep being named, in chapters 24 to 27, the prophet begins by declaring, Yahweh is about to lay waste the earth and make it desolate. Um, And there are hardly any references to particular peoples in 24 to 27. There are one or two. Like the delightful image of the Moabites swimming in dung at the end of chapter 25. Um, but uh, don't, don't ever say that the prophets are middle class guy, bourgeois guys. They are not. They call a spade a shovel. <laughs> Calamity and renewal for the world. And again, you, uh, chapters 1 to 27 then you could say would quite work. If there's nothing else to the book of Isaiah apart from that, they would work. Uh, with this perspective that goes from Judah to the nations around to God's purpose for the whole world, all with calamity um, and renewal. Now go back to the top of the diagram. Underneath where it says time of Ahaz, it then says time of Hezekiah. Because when you get to chapter 28, you kind of start again. And um, you're back in chapter 28 with a concern uh, about Judah. Um, It doesn't look like it at first because it refers to Ephraim. And one or two people asked questions about that in their postings. Um, and that's, again, because rather, rather in the manner of the song about the vineyard, um, Isaiah uh, is, is communicating indirectly as well as directly. Because if you're trying to get a message through, you quite often get it through indirectly better than you get it through directly. So he starts off talking about the proud garland of the drunkards of Ephraim. Oh, great, he's talking about those nasty Ephraimites up the road. Uh, but then it turns out he's just, uh, that's just softening them up uh, in order to kick them in the teeth, um, as he does later on uh, in the chapter. Because chapters 28 to 33 uh, are, are challenges to Judah in the same way as chapters 1 to 12 are, and again, they are both warnings about calamity and promises of restoration. 
what's different is that they come from the time um, of King Hezekiah, um, the, the latter part of Isaiah's ministry, when uh, the Assyrians uh, do actually invade, uh, where they cause terrible havoc uh, in Judah, as they had in Ephraim earlier on, where, again, the question is whether Judah is going to trust in Yahweh or control its own political destiny, which in the time of Hezekiah it attempts to do by making alliances with the Egyptians. So instead of uh, being tempted to go up the street to um, Syria and Ephraim to make an alliance, it's tempted to go down the street. Well, not only is, yeah, not only is it tempted to, but it does go down the street uh, in order to make an alliance with the, with the Egyptians against the Assyrians. Chapter 29, verse 19. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in Yahweh. The neediest people shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Verse 23. When Jacob sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Chapter 30, verse 11. Another of these sayings that Isaiah puts on their lips, not something they, they would have outwardly said, but the implications of what they say. What they say by implication, well, I'll go in the previous verse. They say to the seers, do not see. To the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. In other words, you see, they want this kind of prophecy. Give us good prophecies. Give us nice prophecies. Leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus, that's the implication of their attitude. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you reject this word and put your trust in oppression and deceit and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall become for you like a break in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse. And verse 15. For thus said... The Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. There again you've got the proper word Lord. Um, and then the word God in all capital letters which tells you it's the name Yahweh. For thus said the Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. In returning and rest you shall be saved. And in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. I mean you can't run your politics on that basis can you? But you refused and said, no we will flee upon horses. We'll get some good military hardware. Therefore you shall flee. We'll ride upon swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers shall be swift. And 31, you won. Can I ask you a question quick about that? Go on. Um, sovereign Lord, like, why does the PNIV translate it Sovereign Lord when it's the Lord Yahweh? Uh, well, the word sovereign is the same as the word Lord. Oh. So, sorry, Sovereign Yahweh is um, Sovereign Lord. Uh, if the NIV has got sovereign Lord, then it is as usual translating, replacing the word Yahweh by the word Lord. Mm -hmm. And then it's got the word sovereign instead of the word Lord, which means the same thing. Um, it's just an another way of handling the, tra the, the problem when you've, when you've committed yourself to not having the name Yahweh there. 31.1 makes the point about uh, Egypt. Alas for those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult Yahweh. So chapters 28 to 33, much like what you've been reading in chapters 1 to 12, 
but coming from that later period when the political situation is different, uh, but the underlying spiritual issues uh, are rather similar. Moving now clockwise round the circle, the nations come into focus again in chapters 34 to 39, particularly with the stories about the Assyrians coming to uh, invade Judah and almost um, destroy Jerusalem. Um, and in the midst of that, uh, there is one occurrence of the title, the Holy One of Israel, which kind of explains why the Assyrians don't succeed. The Assyrians, it's a great, it's a great story. It's a story, the chapters, these are the chapters that are repeated, that appear both in Kings and in Isaiah, where the Assyrian king is convinced that he's going to have no trouble at all conquering Jerusalem. It's going to be a walkover. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Then says Isaiah and or says God. Against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. So almost it's inevitable that the Assyrians provoke Yahweh into acting to defend Jerusalem. Because, because by declaring how easy it will be to capture it and how uh, you don't have to worry about Yahweh, they, as it were... Uh, have stung Yahweh into action by deriding the Holy One of Israel. When you get to the end of chapters 34 to 39, the big power um, has changed from being the Assyrians to the Babylonians. Try and remember the order, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. The Assyrians are the big power in Isaiah's own day. The Babylonians are a relatively little power themselves under, within the Assyrian Empire. But the Babylonians have aspirations. Um, and they are seeking to stir things up uh, against the Assyrians, and they will in due course take over from the Assyrians. In that connection, um, they uh, send envoys to Hezekiah to try and make uh, an alliance uh, against the Assyrian power. Um, and Hezekiah is flattered, perhaps, by that. Um, and uh, reveals, t shows all the um, resources that he's got to the Babylonians. And then uh, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, Hear the word of Yahweh armies. Days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your ancestors have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. You think the Babylonians are good friends. You're going to find out it's going to work out the opposite to that. Some of your own sons who are born to you shall be taken away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So you're being taken. Then there's the kind of rather cynical sounding closing phrase. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of Yahweh that you've spoken is good. For he thought, there'll be peace and security in my days. Which perhaps he means in a less cynical way that it comes off, but I don't know, it sounds pretty cynical really. But the previous couple of verses is what's significant in light of the structure of the book of Isaiah as a whole. Uh, your family are going to be carried to Babylon. Uh, and all these possessions that you've shown yourself so proud of are going to be taken to Babylon. Some of your own sons are going to be taken to be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Uh, and then when you turn over the pages, you do literally in my NRSV, um, in chapters 40 to 55, and as you go the next stage around the um, circle, going clockwise in my diagram, Chapters 40 to 55 are declarations of comfort 
uh, to the Judeans in Babylon. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that she served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. In other words, we've gone a long, 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 long way forward. In chapter 39, the exile to Babylon is in the future. When you turn over the page in chapter 40, uh, exile to Babylon has evidently happened some years ago, enough years ago for the prophet to be able to say, okay, you've suffered enough for your sins now, God is now going to restore you. God's now bringing a message of comfort, because you've received from Yahweh's hand double for all your sins. And a remarkable feature of these chapters then, is, that, is the way in which they take up this, that title, the Holy One of Israel, but turn its implications uh, on their head. First Isaiah says, Yahweh is the Holy One of Israel, therefore you're in dead trouble. Or to put the emphasis, Yahweh is the Holy One of Israel, therefore you're in dead trouble. Isaiah 40 to 55 says, Yahweh is the Holy One of Israel, therefore you'll be okay. To be more explicit, the way he spells that out is, chapter 41, verse 14, for instance, Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you insect Israel. Now again, that sounds like sarcastic or something and rather nasty, but, but isn't. Um, you uh, might remember in Psalm 22, the psalmist says, I am a worm and no man. I'm worm and not, I'm not human anymore. I've been so kind of degraded and uh, I've suffered so much. What, what Isaiah 40 to 55 often is doing is picking up the kind of things that Israel says in its prayers like that and uh, um, show, acknowledging them but also saying they're not, they're not going to be the end of the story. So this is saying, don't be afraid, you people who think of yourselves as a worm, you, you people who think yourselves are just an insect. I will help you, says Yahweh. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The, earlier on, the Holy One of Israel was your great threat. Now, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, your Restorer. Verse 16. You shall rejoice in Yahweh. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. Verse 20. Not just you, but all the world is going to see that the hand of Yahweh has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Uh, 43.3. I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of, the Holy one of Israel, your Saviour. Um, well, there's a sequence, I won't read all the rest of the sequence of verses, but you can see uh, that there are about 10 or 12 occurrences of, the, of that description of God in chapters 40 to 55, now as a means of bringing comfort to the people. When you turn out, finally turn over from chapters 56, from chapter 55 to 56 of Isaiah, turn over into the last 11 chapters, then the context has changed again. 40 to 55, uh, you get references to Babylon and to Cyrus and to the possibility of Yahweh returning to Jerusalem and of the people themselves returning to Jerusalem. The chapters thus address the situation of the exiles. But when you read 56 to 66, um, you're reading material that's addressed to people who are back in Jerusalem. I say back in Jerusalem on the assumption that the book is arranged roughly chronologically, so it's not going back to the context of Ahaz and Isaiah, but it is going back to Jerusalem, because the people have gone back to Jerusalem. Um, and the message of the chapters, in a way, is summed up by the very first verse. 
of chapter 56, verse 1. Thus says Yahweh, Maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. You do your part, Yahweh will do his part. You need to live a life um, uh, of trust in Yahweh's promises and obedience to Yahweh's word, and then you will find that things work out. Uh, within these chapters, at the heart of them, are the two occurrences of this title in chapter 60. Where, the, where Yahweh promises that the coastlands will wait for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from far away, their silver and gold with them, for the name of Yahweh your God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Um, the prophet is speaking to Jerusalem, th- imagining Jerusalem being restored and its temple be gloriously rebuilt and so on. Likewise, verse 14, the descendants of those who oppressed you shall come bending low to you, again speaking to the city, all who despise you shall bow at your feet, they shall call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. They forgot to put one in because my diagram would have been much more perfect. It would have been perfect if there had only been a reference to the Holy One of Israel in those chapters. I don't know. The Holy Spirit must have been dozing at the time. Um, no, I don't. Um, I don't. I, I, I haven't got a deep. Um, I've only got stupid things to say, not sensible things to say about that. Well, you see how that works. The, the, at the centre of that diagram is the declaration that Yahweh is the Holy One of Israel. And that truth is one that is spelled out in different ways in all those different sections, in its way even in 24 to 27, where the title itself doesn't actually occur. So, the fact that Yahweh is the Holy One of Israel is the basis for the challenge to Judah in the time of Ahaz at the top. And then it's the basis for the declaration of calamity and hope for the nations in 13 to 23, and implicitly for the declaration about calamity and renewal for the world in 24 to 27. And then the same fact that Yahweh is the Holy One of Israel is the basis for the challenge and promise in the time of Hezekiah. And then for the challenge to the nations with their uh, presumptive attitude to God in 34 to 39. And then the basis uh, when it's turned on its head for confidence that Yahweh is going to uh, restore and deliver his people uh, that's spelled out at great length in 40 to 55. Um, and then finally is the basis for the challenge to trust and obedience in the years after the exile, in 56 to 66. Mm-hmm. Is this different from how I feel like he's being declared as the Holy One of Israel throughout the Old Testament? Is mm-hmm. there something significant about how he's being declared as the Holy One of Israel here? Well, it's explicit that he's being declared as the Holy One of Israel here. That, that title, as I say, hardly comes anywhere else. So, like he's never referred to as holy before? He's referred, no, 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 no he's, he's, I mean, in Leviticus, a key principle is you are to be holy as I am holy. Um, but I presume there's some significance in the fact that, that Isaiah uses that title in a way that nobody else does. Um, and uh, it, it, it links with his ministry, with his, with his, with his calling, his, his, with what happened in Isaiah chapter 6. Um, and it's 
The point is spelled out in a way uh, in, in chapter 5. The significance of the title for him in one of the verses in chapter 5, which I, didn't, I don't think I read out just now. Um, chapter 5, verse 16. Oh, because, it, no, it doesn't, it doesn't appear on my list because it only says, it's only the phrase, the Holy God. And it's, it is one that's worth noticing because it, it is one that um, spells out the way that Isaiah sees, first Isaiah especially, sees, his theolo- sees the theology. Um, 5.16. In the NRSV, the Lord of hosts is exalted by justice and the Holy God shows himself holy by righteousness. Um, and Isaiah there brings three key phrases, three expressions, out of the Old Testament in general and the prophets in particular together uh, in a concentrated form. First of all, uh, he's using that description Yahweh armies again, which was seen in one or two other passages, which is a phrase he he does use. Uh, And then he is using not the complete expression, the Holy One of Israel, but as it were the short version, Holy God. But he's also spelling out how Yahweh's being Yahweh armies and Yahweh's being the Holy God expresses itself. It expresses itself by means of um, what the English translations call justice and righteousness, um, which are hopeless translations of the Hebrew words. Um, I'll talk about them some more when we come to Jeremiah. Uh, But the two Hebrew words um, are mishpat and sadaqah, Um, mishpat is the exercise of authority um, or decision making or decisiveness or leadership Um, the judges in the book of judges um, are the chauffeur team now believe me that meh is just a bit on the front of a word that you add on to words it's not really part of the root meaning so you get words like mishnah and midrash uh, words that uh, that meh is a prefix so the real business part of the word is shafat. Um, and the judges are the chauffeur team. The eem is the plural. So a judge is a shofate. So the vowel, the consonants of mishpat and chauffeur team are, are the same. The chauffeur team in the book of Judges are not judges in our kind of sense, or hardly ever. They are leaders. They are characters who act decisively. Uh, mishpat is leadership, decisive action, the exercise of authority. Um, and that's really dangerous um, because leadership, authority, power can be exercised in such immoral ways. So it's really important that mishpat is accompanied by tzedakah, um, which uh, is the word that's usually translated righteousness. So mishpat is translated justice, which isn't what it means. Tzedakah is translated righteousness, which isn't what it means either. I'm sorry, I didn't invent Hebrew or English or any of these languages. Um, the idea of sadaqah is of you doing right by people with whom you are in a committed relationship, people within your family, within your community. You're doing the right thing by them. Doing right is nearer than righteousness. Righteousness for us is a rather to do with personal morality. But sadaqah is about doing the right thing. Uh, and so it's really important that these two words go together. Because if mishpat is being exercised by, with sadaqah, 
then you're doing business. And if Sadakar is being implemented by somebody who's got Mishpat, then you're doing business. Because you've got both the, the quality of what's happening um, in its doing the right thing by people and the power, authority, activity, initiative that's conveyed by Mishpat. Either of those on their own, this will be wishy-washy and that will be just power. But in, co- in combination, they are uh, really significant and profound. Uh, what Isaiah is here saying is that Yahweh shows himself to, as the Holy One by, ver- by being the God of Mishpat and Tzedakah. And thereby, in a way, redefines the nature of holiness. Because by its own nature, um, as I said earlier on, holiness means being extraordinary, awesome, amazing, different, supernatural. But Marduk and Baal and those other gods, they were holy. They, they are the holy ones. You don't, you don't have to be moral in order to be holy. And this is weird by, us, by our way of thinking because holy for us came to be a moral word. But in its origin, holy is not a moral word, it's a metaphysical word. It's a word that talks about a particular kind of metaphysical category of being, namely people who aren't human beings. But it doesn't mean that they're moral. To be holy doesn't mean being moral for most of the holy beings in the world, or rather not in the world. But when you're talking about Yahweh as the Holy One, then Yahweh's nature as the Holy One is to be characterized by Mishpat and Sadakah. Uh, and, and so um, Yahweh then redefines holiness, or, or Isaiah redefines holiness according to which uh, angle you come at it from. And that's, that's sort of, in a way, what, the way I'd answer your question in terms of why it's significant. The way that, the way that Isaiah talks about holiness is significant, not merely as a, a statistical fact about the number of times he uses the word, but about the way in which he adds that moral content to the notion of God being the Holy One of Israel. God is the Holy One of Israel by virtue of being characterized by holiness and tzedakah. And that's the reason why Isaiah 40 to 55 is able to turn the implications of God being the Holy One of Israel um, onto their head. Because Yahweh, as characterized by Mishpat and Tzedakah, is the one who does the right thing by the people with whom he's in a relationship. So, as it were, he's bound to, to be Israel's redeemer and not just Israel's um, judge by virtue of doing the, right by them, doing the right thing by them because relationships impose <coughs> obligations upon you. Um, we will stop for a minute for you to stretch your voices. Um, and you can talk to each other for a minute about um, what you made of, what you yourselves now are thinking about that pre-modern, modern, post-modern thing and what, the way I talked about interpretation of prophecy um, and whether you think that makes sense or what. So talk about that with each other for a few minutes. Okay, 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 okay. You've had it. Now, there, there, were, there were two people who uh, said particular things on their postings I wanted to uh, ask them to share with us. Uh, one was Dana, who I should have asked when I was talking earlier on. Where's Dana? Um, read your thing out, will you then? Um, oh, crap, I closed it out. I, I talked about... Um, 
Excuse me, only I am allowed to use four-letter words because I'm British. <laughs> we invented those words. They're Anglo-Saxon words. <laughs> I talked about how, um, kind of what you were talking about earlier. Of, uh, I, I don't like that. You've got a nice, you talked about Habakkuk, didn't you? Right. You've, got, you've just got a nice way of, say, of trace, tracing the process of thinking you've gone through. Go on, see if you can do that. If, if I can do it from memory, um, I, I was talking about how I, I, what takes place in Isaiah 1 through 12 is similar to uh, what happens in the prophet um, Habakkuk. Um, Habakkuk kind of laments to God, or kind of shakes his fist at God and says, how can you use the Babylonians against us? Habakkuk is saying the things that we're inclined to say. Right. Yeah. Right, and then God says, hey, I'm, I'm God, I'm in control, <laughs> and you, I'm doing something that you wouldn't believe even if I told you. Mm. And then Habakkuk, true to form, says, you know, c- continues to shake his fist <laughs> to God and go, that's, re- goes, that's ridiculous. And um, God goes on to say in chapter 2 that, you know, there's still a vision for the appointed time, the righteous live by faith, and don't worry, the Babylonians are going to get theirs. Mm. And Habakkuk closes in the third chapter with him praising God, um, basically with the psalm, uh, that... that he basically says, in spite of even if the you know the fields don't give olives, and even if this, that, and the other thing happens, I'll still mm. I'll still rejoice yeah. in the Lord. And so I, I think what I was trying to say in my post was, I'm inclined to like I react like um, Habakkuk does, <laughs> where I'm like, God, this is this is ridiculous that you would do this. But in the end, I, I think I'm reminded uh, that the lesson that Habakkuk taught me was um, that it's not God doesn't really care what my I mean, <laughs> it's not that He doesn't care. It's just that you know. God's God and I'm not, I mean, to use kind of the cliche term, but um, God's got the prerogative in all of this, and he doesn't really, you know, my perspective on it isn't going to influence him in one way or the other, I think it's just Yeah, thank you. And then, uh, Adrienne, I got a really neat account of, where, where is she? Right here. Thank you. Of, um, this is your evening then, isn't it? It's great. Oh, no, it was you, no, it was you wasn't it? No, I'm getting confused with her now. It's, um, yeah, okay. Uh, that bit where you described... How you felt, I thought it was really interesting. So that last bit of your posting, read it out. Can I just read it? Yes, but read it kind of slowly because people take, need time to, uh, to, to hear it. Okay. I suppose it's puzzling to me as I'm reading this that I'm sitting in a library studying to earn a degree to find a career to make money to live. These passages make me feel like I should be somewhere weeping for the state of the nation and of the world, for the judgment of our wickedness, repenting and making straight my paths that are crooked. I don't think I've ever really felt this way before, but sitting in this library seems futile while reading the history of our world and the struggle to love and to be loved that has faced our world forever, not to mention the heart of God that is burning and breaking for us. These musings sound horribly unstable, and I'm realizing this more and more as I'm writing this, but I became so consumed by this text that I began to question the purpose of all of this when this text makes me want to be on my knees worshiping and praying. That's puzzling because I've never been so consumed by Isaiah before or by a feeling that this work might possibly be futile. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we don't think she was unstable, do we? That was, uh, no, that was, that was a, great, um, a great reaction. Uh, and, and if we aren't, if we can simply do this study and not, be, not, be moved, not think we ought to be doing something else, then as it were, it hasn't worked. But if we do the study and we uh, feel as if we ought to be going out doing something else, then, then it has worked. Thank you. Um, uh, page 16, I'm going to say a few things about um, Isaiah 6 and 7 and 9, see how far I get, um, which people asked um, in the posting, so I'll work through as many of them as I can. But then at 9.20, I shall rush out and climb on my bicycle, 
uh, and um, go home and become a gracious host uh, making tea uh, and serving your scones. If some people are going to come and eat and drink them, there are some people who are going to... Yeah, these two are anyway, so that's okay. Um, and uh, I shall so Don't worry about... The, the tea is all decaffeinated, so don't worry about it. Uh, on the other hand, it is English breakfast tea, so you think that, if you think that's really disgusting, um, then have a whisper to me in the kitchen and I'll give you a fruit tea. But you perhaps ought to try English breakfast tea with your scone if you know that it won't keep you awake because it hasn't got any caffeine in it. Page 69, Isaiah 6. Oh, it tells you at the beginning of the, um, the syllabus. The, basically, go to the end of Walnut, turn left, uh, and after about... Uh, 400 yards, you come to Green Street uh, and uh, turn right and park as soon as you can in Green Street. We are on the southwest corner of Green Street and Orange Grove, Miss number 111. So, page 69, Isaiah 6. So, what does holiness mean? Holiness means awesome royal splendor. That's the sense I was suggesting just now. Never mind what's happening to the human monarchy. The year the king Isaiah died. It's this monarch that counts. Did you notice how often Isaiah, how Isaiah refers to Yahweh as the king? God's holiness is the central mystery of God's transcendent deity. The supernatural essence of God's godness. Which makes human beings both draw near and draw back. Holiness means Purity. Holiness expresses the essence of God's deity, and the essence of the God of Israel is moral. It involves justice and righteousness, mishpat and tzedakah. Isaiah speaks especially of the sinfulness of his lips, perhaps identifying with Israel's sins such as perjury, and asking for help from other nations when they should be turning to God, and offering God prayers that were not accompanied by lives committed to justice, but maybe also, as we said before the break, because he is to be a prophet and he needs uh, clean lips. Then he finds that holiness can mean forgiveness. As the Holy One, God dwells in a high and holy place, but also with people who are crushed and humbled. Loving grace is as much part of the essence of the Holy God as our justice and purity. The centre of the chapter indicates that holiness also means punishment. In, in my church, whenever we read Isaiah 6, we stop at verse 8. Uh, Lord, here am I, send me, um, and I expect you do the same. But of course, that's only the introduction to the real meat of the chapter. Isaiah has his, leap, has his lips cleansed so that he can use them in God's service. When he volunteers to do that, it's a somber commission that he's given. I don't know. It doesn't say. I don't know, I'm afraid. What does it mean to say that he was sent to tell people that God was giving them closed minds and hearts? Perhaps God revealed what he was being called to so that when it turned out that way, he wouldn't be overwhelmed by failure. Or perhaps Isaiah's account of his call is written in the light of how things worked out. Or perhaps Isaiah speaks of what God can foresee will be the result of Isaiah's preaching. But since God is willing to send Isaiah just the same, in effect that's God's purpose. 
More likely, it presupposes that the people have reached a point when God's punishment must fall, and blinding them like this is the form that God's punishment will take. Even then it may be ironic. A warning to people of where they might find themselves. He says, listen but don't understand, but he doesn't mean it. His declaring of calamity is then like Jonah's declaring of calamity for Nineveh, which is designed to bring people to their senses, to repentance, to forgiveness, even though it doesn't explicitly urge them to repentance. If judgment is inevitable, that's not the end of the story. Holiness also means faithfulness. How long, says Isaiah, it's a phrase that often comes in the Psalms. It's not a request for information. That is, if, if in, when you say how long in the Psalms, God says, 17 years, you don't then reply, oh, that's okay then. <laughs> how long is a plea for mercy? At first, Isaiah receives only a somber reiteration of how devastating the punishment must be. But this is not all he receives. The people will find, as the prophet has found, that God's holiness includes grace and mercy, which they will experience after the most horrifying devastation, if not before it. Even a felled tree can grow again. And then over the page, wholeness. The English word wholeness is historically related to the English word holiness, as German heil, whole or intact or healed, has, there is also heilig, holy or sacred. So is there a link between holiness and wholeness? The trouble is that, the etym as I said to you on Monday, I think, the etymology, the etymology or the history of the development of words is not in itself a guide to their meaning. The English word nice is related to a Middle English word meaning stupid or wanton, and a Middle French word meaning silly or simple, and they all go back to Latin nescius, which means ignorant. The question is, do people use words in awareness of their historical links? The answer with regard to holy and whole is surely no, except for theological types who become aware of this piece of history and suggest it points to something significant. <laughs> what is that? That you need to be a moral person, holy, if you're to be a whole, healthy, integrated person. That you need to be a whole, healthy, integrated person if you're to be a holy person. Both might be true, or might not, but the history of the words would illustrate the point rather than be evidence for it. In Hebrew, holy suggests heavenly, divine, different, separate, transcendent. A deity is holy by definition. People, things, or places are then holy by association with the deity. Being holy has nothing intrinsically to do with being moral or whole. The Canaanite gods were holy, but don't look either moral or whole. The Hebrew word for whole is tamaim or tam. Wholeness or integrity is tome. Okay, Tom? Is that good? Anybody else call Tom? Yes, another Tom? Lots of Toms, that's good. Be whole or complete is, ta is tamam. The adjective most often refers to animals for sacrifice, which have to be whole and without defect. It's often applied to human beings who are also called to be whole in a moral sense. So Noah, that applies to Noah and Abraham, and especially to Job, and rather puzzlingly for Jacob, who doesn't look very whole, um, but, but the word occasionally can mean simple. Maybe the idea about Jacob is they lived a simple life at home. 
Lovers think their beloveds are tamaim. Occasionally one or other of these words applies to God, but mostly, mostly indirectly. Unfortunately, the Greek Bible translated tamaim with a word meaning flawless or blameless, as if it was a negative word rather than a positive word, and that persists in English translations. English translations, that is, are inclined to translate tamaim or tam as blameless, as if it's the absence um, of a quality. And then you ask questions like, how can I be blameless? When um, the question, how can I be whole, wholly committed, um, is a more constructive, feasible uh, sort of question. A clutch of verses in Psalm 18, where these words come all together. I was tarmame, says the psalmist. I was blameless in the English translations, which makes you feel uncomfortable. Well, he probably wasn't blameless, but he might have been at least upright. With the person who is tarmaim, God says, uh, or the, rather the psalmist says to God, with the person who is tarmaim, you show yourself tarmaim. Uh, the parallel is the word faithful, so faithful and whole come together. This God, his way is tarmaim. The God who makes my way, tarmaim. Some other references to it. I'm sorry? Uh, Tamaim is an adjective. Uh, Tamaim and Tam are both adjectives and the same. Tom is a noun and Tamam is a, ve- is a verb. Over the page again, the promise of an ideal king. Uh, here are these passages which we are most familiar with hearing at Christmas. Um, and as somebody said in their post, and they'd never thought about them kind of in the context of Isaiah. They would, you only hear them in the context of, the, of a Christmas service. So, and it kind of spoiled, I mean, how on earth can I, how can I listen to this passage again in the context of Christmas? Or, or alternatively, how can I, if I'm going to relate this passage, can I relate these passages to Jesus in the meaning that they had in their context? Or only by this process of inspired reinterpretation that Matthew has done. So, jumping down to first to where it says Isaiah 7. In 735, northern Israel and Syria joined forces to try to force Judah to join them in resistance to the mighty Assyrians, but they failed. The theological reason lay in God's promises to protect Jerusalem and to support the line of David. But as Israel and Syria put Judah under pressure, the question is whether Ahaz will live by those promises. In Isaiah's view, the promise means that Ahaz has no reason to panic. Isaiah can see what Syria and northern Israel will look like when Yahweh is finished with them. More solemnly, it means that Ahaz must not panic. The security of his, of his city does not depend on the security of its water supply, which Ahaz is out investigating. It depends on the security of his trust in the God of Israel. Much of of the message Isaiah brings Ahaz is embodied in the son he brings with him, Shear Yashuv. A remnant will return, though it is an ambiguous message. Only a remnant of the Assyrians will return to their own land if Ahaz trusts in Yahweh. Only a remnant of Judah will survive if he does not. Later, when disaster has come on Judah, the name will hint at the hope that at least a remnant will return to the promised land. So I didn't include that earlier on. 
it will also express a challenge that at least a remnant should return to Yahweh. It's expressed in a play, of, play on words in verse 9, the verse that I read out uh, just now. The same Hebrew word denotes being firm in faith and reliable and committed and trustworthy. And also, in consequence, it means being established and secure. So if you do not stand firm in faith, you will not stand firm at all. You will not stand at all. Trust in God um, as the one who guarantees the security of God's people is a key emphasis in Isaiah's message. Isaiah offers Ahaz a sign to prove that God is trustworthy. But the offer functions to expose Ahaz as a man who did not want to trust in God, even if he had the evidence. He doesn't want a sign, and of course he can provide a theological rationalisation for why he shouldn't ask for a sign. You're not supposed to ask for signs. I've read that in the Bible. He's given the sign anyway. But he's told it will do him no good. And here we come to the passage taken up in the New Testament. If the NIV is right, the offer envisages a baby being born to a girl who is at the moment still a virgin. As I said earlier, there's no implication that this will happen without her marrying and conceiving in the ordinary way, even though this talk of a virgin will eventually turn out to be much more appropriate in another connection than Isaiah dreamt. Indeed, it's not not clear that the word necessarily refers to a virgin, uh, see the NRSV. And if the NRSV is right, the reference may rather be to Isaiah's own wife having another baby. The other children that are mentioned in these chapters are Isaiah's. Either way, when the baby is born, it will be a time of deliverance. And his mother will call him, God is with us, out of her gratitude to God for his amazing faithfulness to his people. Though, indeed, it won't do Ahaz any good. Then Isaiah 9 The background of the promise about light dawning in darkness the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light is the warning about darkness, anguish, gloom and distress at the end of the previous chapter. These are parts of the Old Testament's regular way of describing the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. The day when God's punishment is put into effect in historical events. Um, We'll see some more of that when we come to chapter 13 next time. That day, the day of Yahweh, has come for northern Israel, the despised Galilee of the Gentiles. Because the day of Yahweh is also something that doesn't only happen once, gets kind of embodied a number of times. But darkness is not God's last word. And the vision in chapter 9 is of gloom dispelled and distress comforted for northern Israel and for Judah when Judah goes Israel's way. The vision includes a vision of a king who will fulfill all that the king was supposed to be. In appointing David, Yahweh made an irrevocable commitment to his line and promised to bring Israel blessing and justice through his line. See, for instance, 2 Samuel 7. One of you said... Is this promise just a restatement of 2 Samuel 7? As if that was very sharp. As if there was something shameful about it, though. Nothing shameful about it. That's exactly what it is. What God keeps doing through the prophets is reaffirming the promises. God doesn't keep thinking up new things. Why should God need to do that? What God needs to keep doing is reaffirming the old things uh, in new contexts often and in new ways. 
but they are the same old promises because that's part of God's consistency. They're also the um, fulfilment of the description of the king's role in Psalm 72, which I looked at, the Solomonic, the so-called Solomonic Psalm, um, on Monday. As kings failed to be what Judah hoped for, Israel, uh, Israel as a whole looked to God's promises being fulfilled to a future king. That's the beginning of the hope for a Messiah. The actual word Messiah in the Old Testament does simply mean anointed and refers to the present king, not to a future figure. The Old Testament often uses other images to describe the coming king, images such as the branch from Jesse's tree. As often happens, an ordinary word, anointed, in due course became a technical term. But we have to be wary of reading the technical meaning back into where it doesn't apply. Maybe, incidentally, that's true about salvation, which one or two people asked about. What did the, the Israelites understand about salvation? When you find salvation here, it doesn't mean salvation in whatever we would mean by that. I think there are two things we might mean by that. One is salvation means I've got a living relationship with God. And the other is salvation means I'm going to enjoy heaven. The Israelites didn't know they were going to enjoy heaven. There's no notion of eternal life uh, anywhere in the Old Testament except in Daniel 12. If you think that can't be true, then keep looking for it um, in the prophets. Um, they did have an understanding of being in living relationship with God, though. So you could say that they experienced salvation in the same way that we do. But they don't use the word salvation that way. When they talk about salvation, they mean being saved, delivered from some political kind of crisis or from illness or something like that. So again, you have to distinguish between the use of a word like salvation and the realities to which it refers. In Isaiah 9, it's unlikely that Isaiah is aware of speaking about a person to come in 700 years' time. Though it's also unlikely that he thinks of himself as referring to an actual king, such as Hezekiah. He looks, in other words, as if he's bringing good news to the people at the time. So to say to them, oh, don't worry, in 700 years' time there'll be a great king... Uh, would provoke the response, oh, thanks very much. Yet Jesus was sent to be the fulfilment of this vision, as Hezekiah had a responsibility for blessing and justice and peace. Looking at Jesus in the light of Isaiah 9 shows us what Jesus still has to do. He does not yet rule in peace and justice, but Isaiah's promise is that he will. What he did not achieve at his first coming is the guarantee of what he will achieve at his second coming. Isaiah 11 is the um, shoot from the stump of Jesse. It envisages the tree of David felled. And that would be the end. It actually happened with the fall of the state in 587. Davidic kings no longer sat on the throne of Jerusalem. But Isaiah introduces this stump in order to, de to deny that it means the end. Even if there is no potential left in the line of David, there is still potential in those promises of God to David. Indeed, God promises that the, new, that the new growth that comes from this stump will be more impressive than the fruit the tree bore before it was felled. Impressive, impressive enough to draw the world to shelter beneath its branches. On the eve of Jesus' birth, you might have thought that the promise to David was finished. There were uh, some people who were looking for the Messiah to come, but it wasn't a prevalent Jewish idea, any more than in our culture, even amongst Christians, the idea that Jesus is going to come again is something very important. 
I mean, we believe it in theory, but nobody believes it in practice. But the birth of Jesus shows that a tree could grow from a stump that had been dead for 500 years. The promises of God never run out of life. The steadfast, ongoing, committed love of God never ceases, as Lamentation says. The potential of the felled tree is not the potential of root or stump, but the potential of the promise of God. Uh, anybody want to say anything? Uh, second century BC. Daniel 12 is the, well, at least the, the nearest thing you've got to it uh, within the Old Testament. In the context of the Maccabean crisis, where lots of people had been martyred, it was martyrdom that raised the question. Um, and so then by New Testament times, uh, the Pharisees are the, are the people who, who have, all, have all come to believe in that. Um, and as it were, Jesus sides with the Pharisees uh, rather than with the Sadducees. Okay, I'll see some of you soon. Um, and we will drink tea and eat scones.